all scenarios proposed by the IPCC require deep emission cuts of the building sector of more than 50% already by the year 2050. And that is despite the major growth of the building stock projected. So we need to act quickly and we need to develop and upscale solutions that have a strong sustainability outcome. And I think the circular economy can be a part of that solution. You're listening to the podcast Advancing Sustainable Solutions, where we make sustainability research meaningful for the everyday person. This podcast is produced by the IIEE at Lund University. This episode is hosted by Stephen Curtis and Sophie Sandin. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the podcast Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Now, I know if you are an avid listener of the podcast, you're familiar with the IIEE and know that we have several people and projects that are working on the circular economy from multiple perspectives. Now, in today's episode, we want to showcase this research by our colleagues in order to support a deeper understanding of the circular economy from the perspectives of business, urban, and policy. Now, in last month's episode, we discussed the circular economy from the perspective of business, focusing on circular business models for sustainability. Today, we want to build on that discussion. Uh, Sophie and I are really looking forward to continuing to explore circular business models in our second episode of our three-part mini-series on the circular economy. So, Sophie, let's give a recap to our listeners of what we discussed last month. What do you say? Yes, let's do that. Last month, we were joined by our PhD colleague, Catherine Whalen, uh, and also the young entrepreneur and recent graduate from our institute, Lucille Staub, to discuss the circular economy from the perspective of business. How can circular business models support more sustainable consumption by rethinking how we design and access goods? Catherine shared some of her key messages about circular business models, saying that they really aren't very different from regular business models. But by considering the resource flows through the business model, these can be narrowed, slowed, or closed. Right. So it's these three strategies of narrowing, slowing and closing resource loops that we've talked a lot about in relation to the circular economy. So just to reiterate what these three strategies mean, let's revisit the fashion example that we used from last month's episode. Narrowing resource loops means making clothes with fewer materials or with fewer blended fabrics. Slowing resource loops would mean to use our clothes longer or to buy them secondhand or rent them from a clothing library. Lastly, closing resource loops would mean to reuse discarded clothes as materials for new products. Now, today we're going to continue to explore the circular economy, and we'll take what we've learned about circular business models forward with us when discussing the circular economy from an urban perspective. Yes, and the urban perspective comes from one of our four research themes here at the IIEE, which is urban governance and experimentation. Research in this area recognizes the importance of cities in transitioning to a more sustainable society. Consider this. Cities account for some 75% of the world's energy use and over 70% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. And cities represent nearly 80% of global GDP. It is clear that they are big generators of wealth with a clear sociopolitical and environmental footprint. So just think about your own relationship to cities. Perhaps you live in one. Statistics suggest that you might, with about 55% of the global population living in cities today. Perhaps you like to visit cities on vacation, 
Maybe you go to cities out of necessity for work or to run errands. Perhaps you don't even like cities. Either way, cities are essential when we talk about sustainability challenges in society. Now, there are many reasons for this, but maybe one of the most obvious ones and the most visible one is the actual infrastructure that form our cities. Think about the enormous amounts of materials that are needed to build offices, apartments, homes, roads, and infrastructure for sewage, water, electricity, waste, and so on. The mere construction of our cities requires steel, cement, and concrete, wood, and glass. And all of this production in turn calls for the extraction and processing of natural resources from water, sand, metals, ore, wood, etc. And all of these then have environmental impacts, of which many of these resources are non-renewable resources. And when you put all of this into the global perspective, with cities growing all around the world, the scale simply becomes massive. And this is why we in this episode will use the example of building materials as a case to explore further from the perspective of a circular economy. But before we jump into it, we want to really set the scene for you. So we have invited a colleague of ours to explain why cities matter and how the circular economy can be a potential solution for addressing sustainability challenges in cities. My name is Yulia Vertenko-Palgan. I am Associate Professor at the Institute here. I focus on research of uh, the role of cities in uh, uh, sustainable innovations, including the sharing economy, collaborative economy mostly, but also nature-based solutions in cities. So the focus of today's episode is going to be on the circular economy in cities. Why do you think it's so important to focus on cities right now from a sustainability perspective? Uh, well, it's not new to anyone that the most of our population lives in cities today. Um, I think it's about 55% according to UN already now. In 2050, it will be almost uh, 70% of people living in cities. And these urbanization trends lead, of course, to a number of challenges that the cities are facing, both environmental and socioeconomic challenges. Environmental being climate change, uh, but also air pollution and waste generation and Increased resource use are probably the most important from the circular economy perspective, as well as social issues, which circular economy initiatives can help address. Those include issues with the low, uh, low levels of employment in many instances, but also the inequalities, increasing inequalities and uh, social segregation issues. So in a way, cities, on the one hand, they are places where these challenges are becoming acute, but they also are uh, places where there, there are opportunities to address these challenges or where the solutions can be found. If we yeah. think about those opportunities then, uh, what role do you think the circular economy can play in addressing some of these opportunities in cities from a sustainability perspective? I think perhaps uh, for circular economy, the most important challenge um, from environmental perspective is the waste challenge. We generate a lot of waste, and uh, as as society, particularly Western societies, generate a lot of uh, waste from uh, uh, throwing away goods that could still be used and could be repaired or fixed. And whereas there is just a small problem in a in a mobile phone or in a clothes that is uh, has a hole in it, and uh, people don't, you know, th- see it as an opportunity to fix. And uh, uh, we know that. Uh, the household waste that uh, we produce, about one bin of our household waste is actually not just that bin of waste that we produce, but it also brings with it 70 
bins of waste that were produced upstream. So here we talk not about just the waste that at the end of use of the product, but also the, the waste that can be avoided from the production of these products if we were to use them longer, uh, if we could repair, fix them, um, or upcycle, give them a bit of a new life in a way. So this is where circular economy steps in, particularly um, from the environmental perspective. From social perspective, there are also opportunities to bring people together in these um, areas in cities where they can get to know each other and can fix things together, like maker spaces or bike kitchens. The focus of today's episode is going to be about building and construction. Are there any examples in the context of your research uh, where we see circular economy coming into play here? Uh, yes, uh, I think this has been uh, becoming popular in the recent years, uh, also because city governments see opportunities that circular economy initiatives offer, but they also see that those are often a quite quite small initiatives that need support in terms of quite minor resources, but still to survive economically and to be used by people. So uh, cities like Malmo, Gothenburg in Sweden, they design uh, city districts. The example in Malmo is Sege Park area, uh, which is planning for uh, incorporating uh, collaborative and uh, sharing economy initiatives in the uh, new developed buildings. So basically, people will have a place where they can go and fix their clothes or furniture or bikes just next to their apartment with others. That's really great. It's already being incorporated into the design of buildings yes. ahead of time. Exactly. So, uh, Or in Gothenburg, for example, they plan to have these I- initiatives like bike kitchens to host them in the ground floors of the apartment blocks. Yeah, so that's, that's the way th- cities think strategically how they can engage with circular economy initiatives, uh, but also how they can promote more sustainable lifestyle for people who live in these areas. Yeah, and I guess with more people moving to cities, there's more need for infrastructure and more opportunity for cities to think about how to design and build cities for circular opportunities. Right. Thanks so much, Yulia, for joining us. Thank you. So Yulia shared with us the example of Sega Park, an area in Malmo in which they're literally designing the buildings to support these circular strategies. So for example, residents will have a space where they can go and repair products, as well as access shared resources. This is one way in which we can think about designing buildings to support practices among residents for circularity. But we can also think about how then our buildings are being built. And this is a really relevant question when we're thinking about the trends in urbanization. With more than half of the global population currently residing in cities, this trend is only expected to continue. The UN projects that by 2050, 68% of the global population will be living in cities. Yeah, let's illustrate what this trend really means in an example. The expected demand for new building space globally will rise dramatically. Over the next 40 years, the world is expected to build 230 billion square meters of new construction. This is equivalent of building a new Paris every single week. We're talking about an extreme amount of new construction. Just picture a megacity like Paris or Sao Paulo or Shanghai and all of the materials needed to build a new megacity each 
week. Sounds gigantic. Well, it is. I have a quiz question for you, Stephen. No, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> you are ready for it. It's also for you who listen. Here it comes. What are the two top substances used by humans on Earth? Okay, so I I actually know the first substance, and and I think it's water, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously, like why, we. Why would you say that? Yeah. Well, we use water for our own personal consumption uh, in agriculture. Um, or either the food that we consume or the food that then is consumed by livestock yep. uh, for the production of our products. Yep. Um, and then if we're thinking about uh, building and manufacturing of, of buildings and the, and the materials for that, I mean, we use water in all of those production processes. Definitely. Yes. So water is definitely the, the most widely used substance by humans on Earth. Yeah. What's the second then? So you are on the right track with the second. It is definitely related to the topic of today. So what could it be? Uh, I want to give you who listen a few seconds to think about it. All right, and here the answer is the second most used substance on Earth is actually cement. So cement is made of calcium, silicon, aluminum, iron, and other ingredients. And cement is used to bind different aggregates together. And you might have already guessed it or you maybe already know it. The mixture of cement and aggregate forms concrete. So let us briefly dive a little deeper into concrete, shall we, Stephen? Uh, yeah, sure. So first of all, concrete is super durable. The Pantheon in Rome, right? It was built in the second century. I mean, like... A very long time ago. Yeah. And, and it's still standing today. It's made of concrete. Our houses, our roads, bridges, and dams, many of the infrastructure that we see around us, they're also made of concrete. So what is this miracle material then? Well, concrete is the substance that's made up of cement and some kind of aggregate, right? Which can be, for example, sand, gravel, or stone. Now, a concrete provides many benefits to our society in terms of shelter, safety, flood control, for example. Uh, it also causes a lot of stress on the environment. Yeah, because nothing is perfect. Cement and the aggregate used in producing concrete require mining and the extraction of new raw materials such as iron, calcium, silicon, aluminum, sand, gravel, stone, and other materials. Actually, the aggregate used to produce concrete, no matter if it's sand, gravel, or stone, is actually the most mined material in the world. Consider the damage to local ecosystems through habitat destruction, as well as water and air and noise pollution. Some of the materials used in manufacturing concrete are now becoming scarce resources. And we're expecting to see the demand for concrete increase as there's a need for building uh, so many more a buildings. New, a new Paris every Ex week. Exactly. Um, but you can imagine that as things become more scarce, it requires more destructive mining techniques used in order to secure these resources as they become less and less available. And we should also remember that it's not only the production of the concrete that has an environmental backpack, but it's also the environmental impact from concrete constructions themselves. Because construction requires the removal of uh, fertile soils. And once built, there is not an opportunity for water to return to the soils and replenish groundwater reserves. Instead, there is an increased runoff, which may contain unhealthy substances harmful to ecosystems. Yeah, it's true. And then... If we consider the production of cement in particular, it's a very carbon-intensive process, uh, representing about 8% of the global CO2 emissions. And it, too, comes at a need for mining the essential natural resources that go into the production of cement as a, as a substance. Uh, and then, of course, its production requires a large amount of water and energy 
uh, throughout its stages of production. And that sound brings us to the sustainability scoop of the month. Yay! So there, <laughs> yeah, I know you're so excited about I'm the, always excited about sustainability scoop. Yeah. I think it's so much fun, <laughs> if I may say so. Uh, we, we like this new feature of the podcast. Um, and this month, obviously, there's a lot of media coverage on both the challenges of the building sector and the attempts towards solving these, these challenges. Since here at the podcast, we're all about advancing sustainable solutions, we want to highlight the Building Green Forum, which took place in Copenhagen the 30th and 31st of October. The event brought together architects and building developers and property owners, industry experts and researchers to discuss these solutions, many of which included circular strategies in the construction sector. The forum departs from the understanding that building materials account for half of the solid waste generated worldwide, making the construction sector among the world's largest producers of waste. So obviously, this knowledge is at the forefront of the discussions then taking place at the Building Green Forum. Now, our colleague Julia, who you'll hear from later on in the podcast, she attended the event and she shared some of her reflections on the event with us um, as part of the Sustainability Scoop today. I think one of the cool things that the the forum highlighted was the circular construction challenge and how to rethink waste in the building sector in particular. Now, this was a challenge over the course of one year in which 39 innovators and businesses in the in the sector look to design circular business models that may actually be both uh, financially feasible but also have customer acceptance. So the three different projects then that were featured at the Building Green Forum was looking at how we can grow new building materials from waste, uh, thinking about biomaterials and growing woods and such uh, from waste. The second project was looking at alternatives to how to reuse building materials in large-scale retail space. The third project looked to use previous waste from buildings that are being um, deconstructed or torn down to build new generations or the next generation of buildings and cities. So super cool to see these solutions being advocated and discussed at such a high level. Yeah, indeed. Sounds like uh, very interesting examples. And we should also say that we also found many other approaches to try to decrease the negative environmental impacts from construction materials uh, in other news articles. Uh, such attempts include, for example, to close resource loops by reusing demolished concrete as aggregate for new concrete, or by simply reducing waste when reusing parts of old buildings in new buildings. But I think this is where we should bring in our PhD colleague and friend, Judah Nussholz, to tell us more. Hi, Julia. Thank you for joining us on Advancing Sustainable Solutions today. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Julia, you are a PhD candidate here at the IIIE, and you have been researching the circular economy from a business model perspective for four years, and often with a focus on the building and construction sector. As you may know, in this episode, we have decided to zoom in on cities and constructions in particular. So, of course, we are very happy that you are here to share your knowledge on this. Please tell us more about what you are working on. Yeah, so I research what are circular business models, how they can be implemented, and whether they are effective to help us address sustainability challenges. And yes, many of my case studies were in the building sector, and I'd like to relate back to what you have already said in the episode about why this building sector is so critical to look at. Our world population is growing, urbanization processes are continuing, and therefore a large share of our global building stock still needs to be built. 
So if we really are adding the equivalent of Paris every week in new construction, this is in strong contrast to the pathway scenarios by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. All scenarios proposed by the IPCC require deep emission cuts of the building sector of more than 50% already by the year 2050. And that is despite the major growth of the building stock projected. So we need to act quickly and we need to develop and upscale solutions that have a strong sustainability outcome. And I think the circular economy can be a part of that solution. I really couldn't agree more. And I think that's why I'm really glad we're covering this in today's episode. But let's talk maybe a little bit more about the impacts from the building sector. Do you want to just share a little bit of how you conceptualize this in your research? Yeah, sure, Stephen. If we look at impacts of the building sector, we can distinguish two types. Firstly, operational impacts. So those are impacts from how we use the building, what we call the use phase, such as energy efficiency. And secondly, embodied impacts. That are impacts embodied in the materials and components of buildings, from the extraction to the processing to the transportation and their end of life. And in the last decades, we have seen a lot of improvements in impacts of this first category in how we use buildings. For example, the building's ability to hold heat, contributing to energy efficiency. Which is great success. Yes, absolutely. And therefore, the impacts in the second category, embodied impacts from building materials, are now about 50% of the total life cycle impacts. So it is time to pay attention to what materials we use, how we increase the lifetime of our buildings, and how we save materials at the end of life of a building. And does this remind you of something? Sure, the circular economy. And I think that's really a great segue into thinking about the circular economy for buildings and construction. So I think if we consider the first type of impacts, those from the use phase, I want to reiterate the example that we discussed earlier, where in the neighborhood in Malmö called Sega Park, they're actually designing buildings from the beginning to facilitate the slowing of resource loops. But Julia, let's discuss then strategies of narrowing, slowing, and closing resource loops in addressing the second type of impact that you've mentioned, those that are embodied in the materials that we're using in our buildings. Um, what examples have you come across in your research seeking to address these second type of impacts? Yes, you see there are many examples of how we can achieve narrowing, slowing and closing resource loops in the building sector. But of course, there's no magical solution to anything and reuse and recycling also needs energy and transport and often addition of new materials to comply with today's safety and efficiency standards. I want to ask you who listen to think about this. What is your building made out of? Is it made from brick or concrete or wood? If you would tear down your house, do you think anything from it could be reused in other applications? And do you think the efforts for reusing it would be worth it? I find these important questions. So I got in touch with a Danish company spearheading circular economy transformation in Copenhagen. They are called Lenea. And this is very Danish. If you want to look them up, it's spelled L-E-N-D-A-G-E-R. They are architects, consultants, and material developers with their main aim to advance circular economy in the building sector. One of their building projects is a row of residential houses in the south of Copenhagen, in which the windows are made with reused glass, the wooden floors and facade cladding are made from byproducts of plank production, and the concrete used contains aggregates from old crushed concrete. They refer to this as upcycling. And it really is a way to slow and close the resource flows. 
And what they do are all fantastic examples. But does this truly deliver sufficient environmental benefits? What are the implications for the financial sustainability of the company? And do these products satisfy customers' requirements? How does this work out for other value chain partners who have to deal with used materials and develop new manufacturing practices? Yeah, these are really good questions, Julia. What did you find? Well, good news first. All three products have significant potential for environmental impact reductions. Windows with reused glass, for example, have 77% lower carbon impacts compared with windows made from primary glass. Imagine if we could upscale this. And it appears that this would also work for, for the customers, in this case, the building developers. For building developers, the project created added value as they were able to innovate and create knowledge that renders their organization more prepared for future changes in regulation. And it also helped them reduce the building's impact, which is important for their reporting, building certification, and their organization's strategy objectives. But what about all the companies involved in material collection, manufacturing, and installation, which have to, in some cases, rethink their way of working? Well, from running service with the value chain partners, I have found that after the project, all partners, apart from one respondent, indicated that through the project, they have found ways to make manufacturing with used materials possible and that they are now more interested to work with the circular economy practices. Isn't that interesting? So on a side note, we see that these front-running projects can have an impact on advancing a circular economy transition in a sector, raise awareness and increase the willingness of actors in the sector to collaborate. So Julia, what's in it for companies? Um, well, looking at the value chain network, the project clearly created jobs and business opportunities. So not only for Lenier, the case company, but also for companies supplying the materials or dismantling the old windows. So there's an indication that the circular economy does have a potential for creating additional jobs. We can see that some of the manufacturing processes are more labor intensive compared with linear production. For example, the installation of wood floors, because the planks from byproducts are shorter than the conventional planks. Julia, I have to say that it really warms my heart to hear that there are some solutions available and that they're already being tested in real cities. Um, but the inevitable question is, of course, are these solutions also economically viable? Can these business models support not only environmental sustainability, but also economic sustainability for the companies that are involved in them? Well, that's a good question. I did look into whether it was economically sustainable for the case company that needed to stem the investments for new products and value chain development, including all the safety tasks required for building products. And it turned out that for now, investment costs were paid back and future production seems financially viable because there's a lot of room to improve production efficiency after this first experiment and also for applying economies of scale. Or imagine if these production practices were integrated into existing large-scale companies. But yes, it does remain a challenge to recover end-of-life materials in an economic manner with lacking taxation and recovery infrastructure. But I want to emphasize that overall, we find that material upcycling is a viable industrial model that has the potential to be competitive with linear production of materials, especially when economies of scale are applied and production processes will become more efficient. Julia, it sounds like from your research then that you've found that circular strategies in the building sector can contribute to both improved environmental performance, but then also 
uh, it's economically viable for businesses or economically interesting for businesses to pursue these strategies. Now, this all sounds good, but you mentioned that this is the good news. What about the other side of the coin for businesses? Yes, um, well, there's one last thing that should be noted. Findings clearly showed that environmental improvement potential differs with the material streams and the product design. Not every product can be improved through circular economy strategies. In the case of concrete, 91% of global warming impacts stem from cement, which cannot be reduced through using recycled aggregates. It only benefits other types of impacts, such as human health. So there are also trade-offs between the impact categories. We see that also in the case of windows. Reusing glass has a strong reduction potential of global warming impacts, but because they require more wood for the frames at the moment, which can be improved in the future, their land use impacts in regard to land use change are slightly higher compared with a linear alternative. So it is extremely important to carefully design circular products. And because that is so important, let's pick this up again at the end of this episode. Now, we have talked about the business side of it all. But what about the customers? What about the building developers that want to build attractive and livable houses that they can sell to us, the end users? Let's dive a little deeper into this issue of customer acceptance. The case company Lenier was able to convince two innovative building developers to work with them despite the risk of this innovation. But in most cases, customer acceptance is actually still a key barrier to upscaling circular economy practices. And someone who knows a lot about this is Felicia Gustafsson, who recently graduated from the IIIE and wrote her thesis about customer acceptance in the circular economy. Felicia, can you briefly tell us what your thesis was about? I'd be happy to. Building developers and investors have a critical influence on the processes and products used in construction. So I investigated how a European manufacturer of building products could redesign their business model towards circularity in a way that their customers would find attractive. That's very exciting. And what were the changes in business model that you suggested? I designed four different innovations, which in different ways implement circularity. So the first innovation aimed at slowing loops. So increasing the lifetime of the building components by designing the building for increased adaptability. This helps adjust the building design to changes in user needs and also can help avoid premature demolition. The second innovation aimed at closing loops by using used materials in the production. The third innovation aimed at both slowing and closing loops. Here, the idea is to design materials, components, and buildings already in the design stage to increase their reuse and recycling potential at the end of life. Think, for instance, about choosing materials with a high value at the end of life, but also designing the building components for disassembly and reuse. And then the fourth innovation was focused on a more radical change in the company's business model. This suggested a shift from sale of components to instead lease of the components. And this can enable reuse as the responsibility for the components stay with the manufacturer throughout the life cycle. Okay, and what did the customers say about these innovations? Which ones would they be willing to support and which ones not? Well, customers were definitely less positive towards the leasing system for building components. Although it was framed as an opportunity for cost saving for the building developers, the long lifetime of buildings makes it very difficult for them to see the business case. And it's also far from a conventional business model in the construction industry today. 
but I do think we might see some interesting developments here with this type of more innovative circular business model in the sector in the future. Mm -hmm. And what are the key takeaways? Well, overall, we can see that customers are more willing to support circular innovation in product design rather than in the business model. But to date, we can also see that environmental value is often not enough as building developers are very much focused on the financial value. And here, quality and price are key criteria for all building developers as failure of the building components, of course, is very costly. So this makes it very important that there's also financial value from these type of circular innovations. Interesting. So there are some low-hanging fruits that can be reaped in near future, but for some solutions, it may need a more systemic change in the sector. And um, yeah, what did the case company say about your findings? Well, it really helped them to get a direction in their circular innovation process and also provided evidence for the management of what to focus on. And they now have their research and development team working on bringing some of these suggestions further, which is very exciting. Yeah, that is very exciting. Thanks, Felicia. So we're coming closer to the end of the episode. Uh, and Julia, you promised us to get back to the environmental impacts of circular economy solutions. Yeah, so whether it is in the building sector or in any other sector, we have seen that environmental benefits are not realized by default. It requires careful design of circular products and business models to realize the environmental potential. And because of that, I developed a checklist for environmentally sound circular business model design. It summarizes the key considerations for environmental impact reduction based on recent contributions in the field and my own evaluations. The checklist can guide anyone developing circular business models to secure their environmental potential. We will provide a link to the checklist on our website. Yes, you can visit our website, www.iiwe.lu.se backslash podcast. And for those that subscribe to our monthly newsletter, we will also send out the checklist. And if you're interested in subscribing to our newsletter, please also sign up on our website. But I was curious what the listeners are thinking. What do you think about hearing about the sustainability impacts of circular economy implementation in the building sector? With the increasing building stock, will circular economy implementation be sufficient to achieve the deep emission cuts until 2050 required for staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius and preventing the worst impacts of climate change? Given quite some skepticism among customers, will we be able to achieve the transition fast enough within the short remaining time window? Shifting to circular management of materials is no doubt essential for sustainability. But is it sufficient to meet our grand sustainability challenges? Of course, businesses alone cannot be responsible for driving the change. There is a need for a systemic change. Julia, these are some really interesting questions and ideas that you're starting to reflect upon. And uh, we had the pleasure of talking about this last week. Uh, just for our listeners to know, every Wednesday we hold a lunch seminar here at our institute where we get to share and talk about our research with colleagues. And Julia, you, you presented at the lunch seminar last week, and I really liked how you closed that presentation and asking some of these provocative questions about challenging our current economic paradigm and thinking about how the circular economy can contribute to more sustainable modes of production and consumption. Yes, I'm wondering if the circular economy is truly addressing the system failure in the way we organize production and consumption. In my view, this system failure is rooted much deeper in our economic paradigm that depends on continuous growth and on keeping consumption and profits at high levels. 
in such a system, waste is an inevitable part. So in my view, the circular economy is essential for managing materials more sustainably, but will be insufficient to create sustainable economic systems that allow the rapid cuts of absolute emissions. And next to that, one key thing is, of course, to remember the need for policy. We need policy to change current incentive structures and to steer and accelerate the transition towards a more sustainable way of using resources in our societies. This brings us to the end of the second episode of our mini-series about the circular economy. I want to say that when we prepared for this episode, I started seeing buildings in my surrounding differently. That is, I started to see them not only as houses, but also as structures made out of materials that are more or less easy to reuse. I think that the importance of a circular economy becomes very apparent when you see all the buildings in a city in terms of the material that they're made of, in addition, of course, to their soul and you know their function in the city. But then think of the potential saving of virgin material that can be realized if we are more effective in using the materials that are already used in construction, that is, already in the loop. It also made me think of being even more creative with all kinds of resources that are being discarded around the globe. For example, I remember reading an article about various projects that create housing out of discarded shipping containers. How do you like that, Stephen? Yeah, so this is really interesting. It reminds me of a post that I just saw on LinkedIn about creative ways that waste are being used to create the building materials of our future. So like fast food restaurants being constructed out of old shipping containers, bricks out of beer bottles. But these examples are still framed very much in the current economic system that requires growth and encourages excess. And even in the comments section on this particular LinkedIn post, you could see how uh, provocative it was. There was a lot of disagreement among those that had commented on the post. So I I think I want to echo Julia's earlier ideas then about needing to rethink our production and consumption patterns towards sufficiency. And of course, this requires us in asking ourselves what constitutes enough beyond excess, uh, but also then kind of confronting our own preconceptions and notions of uh, how we should construct our buildings and how what they should be built from and how they should look and operate in society. If this sounds like an interesting idea for a future podcast episode, I should say that some of our researchers now are exploring this idea from the perspective of the circular economy, considering sufficiency. Let us know if you want to hear an episode like this in the future. You can get in touch with us on our website or drop us an email. You can reach us at podcast at triple And just relating back to what you just said, Stephen, uh, I think this relates very well to something that both Catherine and Julia have emphasized over both these two first episodes. And that is that businesses alone cannot be responsible for driving a circular economy. Thinking of the good examples that have been mentioned, Julia's construction company that reused construction material, and Catherine's example of entrepreneurs starting a clothing library, for example, What is needed then to make these kinds of initiatives the norm rather than the exception? Well, they have also given us the answer. We need policy to drive systemic change, to promote circular business models, to disfavor unsustainable models, and so on. And I guess this is where we're going to take uh, our next episode. It's the last episode in a three-part mini-series on the circular economy. And we want to talk about the role of policies in promoting and facilitating a circular economy. 
If you thought you learned a little bit about cement in this episode, in our next episode, you're going to learn a lot about light bulbs uh, because we collaborate with another one of our PhD colleagues, Jessica Luth Richter, and she's going to share her knowledge about existing policies to promote slowing and closing of resource loops, but using lighting as an example. So this episode will launch on the 16th of December. And in the meantime, you can visit our website at www.iiwe.lu.se backslash podcast, where you'll find links and other useful information about today's episode, including Julia's environmental checklist, which she wants to share with all of our listeners. And we want to give a special thanks to Julia for collaborating with us on this episode, and also to Felicia for sharing her insights from her work on customer acceptance. Julia is about to defend her PhD thesis early next year, so we asked her, what happens up until then? Uh, one of the remaining goals I have in my PhD is to disseminate some of the tools that I have been developing more widely among practitioners to help them design circular business models. So with that, we bring this episode to a close. Now, I can't wait to get started on our next episode talking about policies in the circular economy. But before we go, we have a few more people that we'd like to thank. We want to thank Carl Dahlhammer and Cass McCormick for providing both the support and the resources to make a new studio with new recording equipment. And it's very exciting uh, as we continue to grow with our podcast. And finally, of course, we want to thank Marianne, our communication director here at the IIIEE, for her support. With that, we want to thank you in particular for listening and keeping up with Advancing Sustainable Solutions. We're excited to keep making episodes for you well into the future. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.